Hello, dear listeners. This is a reminder that my six-week Magic of Memoir event starts this week. And so if you're writing memoir, this event is truly special. It tackles the emotional part of writing memoir, the fear, the shame, the taboos, the confessional part that's absolutely expected of memoir writers. And yet it also has the effect of stopping writers in their tracks. Because really, you're supposed to write about the things you've never said out loud. You're going to air your dirty laundry. You're going to write that secret? Yes, you're at least going to put it on the page and see what happens. And our guest teachers have all been there. And so here's a reminder of who they are. And they have lots of great things to teach you. Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black. Elizabeth Nayamayaro, author of I Am a Girl from Africa. Nadia Boltz-Weber, author of Pastrix. Feruze Dumas, author of Funny and Farsi. Gina Frangello, author of Blow Your House Down, and Lily Danzinger, author of Negative Space. We kept the price at $225, and you can still register all week at magicofmemoir.com. We're recording all the classes, and so we thank you so much and hope to see some of you there. Hello, daughters and sons, inheritors of your family stories and holders of generational tales. I am Brooke Warner, and I'm here with my enduring co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, I'm excited to have my friend Laura Davis on the show today. And for our listeners who don't read a lot of memoir, uh, you might not know that one of the most enduring themes... As I said to Laura later in the interview today, uh, you know, second possibly only to coming of age or maybe survivor memoirs is the mother-daughter memoir. So, uh, yes, there are father-daughter memoirs and there are mother-son memoirs, too. But really, in terms of volume, the mother-daughter story definitely reigns supreme. And so, Grant, I thought we might dive into this a little bit today, talk about why uh, and about why memoirists should go ahead and embrace the impulse to write about their mothers if they want to, uh, even if they're concerned, which I hear a fair amount, that it's a saturated category, which on its face it is. But honestly, before we even get into the mother-daughter story, maybe let's start with this, uh, which is the fact that there are a lot of books Uh, out there in the world. And authors get feedback and sometimes push back over this notion that there's already a book similar to theirs on the market, you know, or they fear that their book has already perhaps been done in some iteration. And I'm curious if you've experienced this grant, or maybe you've heard from others who have. Um, And I I guess I just want to more broadly ask you about your perception of this, whether, whether it's a fear or even merited. I definitely think it's a pervasive fear, probably in every single genre in some way. And it's interesting because I recently had an idea for a memoir. So I did a bit of research to see what was out there on the topic. And while I found that others had written about it, no one had written about it like I wanted to write about it. So there's something to be said for putting our own signature, our own voice on a topic, no matter how common it might be, and trusting that we'll bring a new perspective to it. That said, I can only imagine how daunting this might be in memoir, because at this point, it seems like there are you know, innumerable books about addiction or various health problems, and as you said, certain family relations, like the mother-daughter relation. And, and yet these are stories that will always exist. And and there will always be a fraught mother-daughter story full of drama that demands to be told. So I'll I'll let you speak to the publishing end of things, which probably has different ramifications. But on the writing end, I always tell people you give 100 people the same story premise and you get 100 different stories back. So 
I would tell people to write that mother daughter book or whatever it is that they think um, has already been done and think about how you can make it compelling in your own way. And I should note that this all um, is the same in fiction, definitely. And I've definitely read book reviews of books that are similar to a book I might be working on. And I definitely get down for a while and worry that mine won't get published as a result. But I don't think that's the case. And I recently was watching this documentary on the movie Forrest Gump, of all things, and it had a crazy production journey. And after Rain Man, the movie Rain Man became popular and Dustin Hoffman won the Academy Award for it, studios thought Forrest Gump was too similar to that and they pulled it. But they were obviously wrong. Because they're, they're, they are two different stories in the end. And even even their similarities, like they don't, it's not like because you've seen Dustin Hoffman and Rain Man, you don't want to see any other movies that are similar to that. They don't cancel each other out. But, you know, probably serve to expand interest. So the powers that be are often wrong. Yeah, that's so interesting because I would never even associate Forrest Gump and Rain Man. Yeah, <laughs> you know? And so exactly. it's like, exactly, the powers that be, you know, they're they're categorizing things sometimes based on saleability without really thinking about how readers read. Uh, and, you know, I, I think this is so true. I mean, I love, I love it because when we asked Laura about it later today, you'll all hear like she's completely not worried about it. But still, I wanted to sort of center the conversation around it because as a, as a publisher who publishes a lot of mother-daughter memoirs, I do hear this fear a lot that people are worried, you know, there's not room for their story. And of course, they're absolutely is room, you know, and as you said, they're all all different. And some people are just wanting to consume these kinds of stories. And I've read countless mother daughter memoirs over the years, but reading Laura's offered me something completely unique. Uh, you know, first of all, her structure was different than anything I had ever seen before. Um, and second, her insights, you know, are they're not even intended to be wholly unique. You know, I mean, I think that's the other thing that's really important, actually, which is that when you write memoir, you're really supposed to be drawing out the universal aspects of what is a commonality, right? So that's the point. Like you're not really trying to have a rarefied or unusual experience on the page necessarily, but rather trying to express yourself in such a way that the reader feels connected to you. And so if your goal is to make people care, in fact, you're really trying to draw out the universal elements, you know, rather than put yourself in some kind of glass box around it. Um, I mean, so you mentioned that a lot of these points are true for fiction, Grant, um, but how about like making the reader care about the protagonist in, in this kind of way. Yeah, I just I think it's 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 just so much about the execution of the story. And it's all about the writer's imagination, you know, the writer's wisdom, uh, the writer's ability to be vulnerable on the page and go where others might not go. So part of that might be uh, for an interest in the character. And that is the main reason that most people read. You know, they want to relate to a character and live in that character. Uh, but sometimes people read also for just for the love of an author's voice or that particular author's perspective on a situation, uh, which I guess is a type of character as well. Yeah. And in memoir, the readers expect memoirs to be flawed. Nobody wants to read a perfect human being. It doesn't even ring true. 
Uh, and, and then there is this thing, though, about growth, right, that there needs to be some kind of transformation. And I think that's why the mother daughter memoir perhaps has such staying power, because most women do have to reckon with their relationships with their mothers at some point. And culturally, I think we're more likely than our brothers to take care of our mothers. We're more likely to wrangle with our mothers. Obviously, you know, this is, I said, more likely. I I (laughs) worry about getting calls from all the guys who are like, we're taking care of our moms. Um, But, you know, it's true because it's we we can kind of tend to separate less from our moms because the culture doesn't encourage that as much as it does for boys and men. And it's also not to dismiss or overlook the issues that exist with dads. I just think it's different. Uh, Because I was just really processing for myself, you know, what is it about mother-daughter relationships that have so many women coming to uh, the page to write these stories, whereas comparatively few exist uh, with sons and mothers. Although, you know, of course, there are famous ones like the Tender Bar, which is absolutely gorgeous. So Grant, here's here's a fun and tough question for you. If you were to choose between writing the story of your childhood, which would be coming of age, or of your relationship with your mother, mother, son, what would you choose? I think that's something I'd only tell my therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But now now that you pointed out this, this gaping hole in the market that there are very few mother son memoirs, maybe I should jump on that Mm -hmm. one. I think maybe both though, in a strange way. I mean, I think it's about, you know, memoirs, uh, and definitely pick this up while uh, listening to to Laura that you've got to be ready to write them. They've got to like you've got to be at the time in your life when when that story really resonates and you and you want to go there. So I think if I was going to you know up until recently I probably would have been more prone to write the coming of age story because I like to think of you know the weird places I've lived and the weird experiences I've had and how they all add up to becoming who I am now. And it's it's in some ways a better story with more drama and more of a narrative arc because it's all about the quest for self-fulfillment in some ways. You know, it's a book about self-creation. But I think like where I am now, and I just recently turned the corner on this, I might be more tempted to write the story of my mother just because she's nearing the end of her life and many issues of caring for her have come up. And those issues, as perhaps are the case in the mother-daughter memoirs you mentioned, bring up a lifetime of perspectives and stories. You know, I read the other day that all stories, the commonality they have is that they reckon with death in some way, because that's the biggest thing we all have to deal with in life. So the coming of age story is fun because it's all about becoming, but the story of my mother might be more important because it's about the care of another person, which is such a challenge. You know, there's, there's just that attention between self-fulfillment and sacrifice that I still feel. So Brooke, you're not getting off. You know, I'm not letting you off of this. It's your turn to sit on the writing <laughs> therapist's couch and tell which one you'd write. I knew you were going to make me answer it too, which is totally fair. Um, But I don't know. I'd have to hedge a little bit because it's hard to imagine writing about my mother while she's still alive. I I definitely think I would censor myself. Um, And anytime I've thought about writing a memoir, which I definitely have, it's never been about my young life. I've never really thought about doing coming of age. I've always thought about my adult story, you know, things that I've lived through probably in my in my 30s and 40s. Um, I have general angst about what my parents would say or think. I mean, in times when I've written personal narratives, my my mom is all over it. You know, I mean, she loves to read my stuff. So there would be no getting away from that. Um, and so I don't think that I'm alone, you know, in, in my kind of reluctance to go there of just being exposed. You know, you're, you're already exposed to your readers. And then it's that, you know, that question of being exposed to your inner circle. There's, there's a lot 
to unpack there. Uh, so let's hear what Laura has to say on this topic, you know, having written this book over uh, the course of, of 10 years and grappling with these kinds of topics herself, uh, her book, The Burning Light of Two Stars, um, is more centered on those final years leading up to her mother's death, but we will certainly hear from her what she has to say about this enduring power of the mother-daughter narrative when we get back after this teensy break. Welcome back, everyone. Laura Davis is our guest today, and Laura is a six-time best-selling author. Her books, including The Courage to Heal and I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, have been translated into 11 languages and sold 1.8 million copies. Laura leads writing workshops in the U.S. and internationally that focus on writing as a tool for healing and transformation. Her new book is a memoir about the tumultuous twists and turns of mother-daughter love. The Burning Light of Two Stars. And you can look at it, pre-order it, and uh, read all about it at lauradavis.net. Hi, Laura. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, we're thrilled to have you. And I I know you've been working on this book for a long time, uh, and you had a fraught relationship with your mother with some periods of estrangement. Uh, And then toward the end of her life, she comes out and lives with you in Santa Cruz, um, or not with you, but near you in, in your caretaking her. And, you know, I was wondering if you can talk about why writing this book was important. And when did you imagine for the first time, if if you can pinpoint that, that you would write a memoir about your relationship with your mom? Well, you know, I've been writing about my mom. I think the first thing I published about her, I was 21 years old. And mm-hmm. I was included in a anthology by Tilly Olson with a poem about my mother. So, you know, she's definitely been one of my obsessive topics um, throughout my life. And my writing about her and about our relationship has evolved as I have matured. And you know, I think the reason I feel like she's she's a great character, for one. I mean, she's dramatic, she's passionate, she's flawed. Um, and I would, I would give myself the same characteristics. So the two of us together, you know, there's a lot of fireworks between us. And, you know, I felt like I wanted to write this story because there are a lot of people in the position that I was in, which is that my mother had betrayed me at a really critical point in my life. And then at the end of her life, I had to face becoming her caregiver. And, you know, so I was dealing with the question of, can you take care of someone who has betrayed you, where there's this something unresolved in your relationship that's never been sorted out? And I think that's just something that so many people are dealing with. As I was going through it, I felt like it was a universal situation, not just particular to me. Well, I was struck by something you wrote in your memoir, which is that after writing and publishing The Courage to Heal, you were famous for the worst thing that ever happened to you. And I can't really imagine that experience. And, I, and I'm curious if you could say more about it, because I think a lot of writers and, and especially you know writers of memoir are putting on the page things that feel dangerous or taboo. But there's a desire under all that to be read, which could lead to being famous. And yet it sounds like it was very much of a double-edged sword for you. Yeah, it was. I mean, the first thing is I was 31 years old when The Courage to Kill came out. And to me, that's like a baby right now. You know, I was really young. And I also, you know, I had written about being sexually abused by my grandfather, uh, my mother's father, which is why she had such an incredibly difficult time with when I came out with it. And I was really still 
in the throes of my own healing process then. I mean, I was going to therapy a couple times a week. I was having flashbacks to what had happened to me. My whole life was disrupted, and I was completely obsessed with sexual abuse. So at the time the book came out, I was not stable enough, I guess, or psychologically developed enough to really be able to handle the impact of having a book that that just through grassroots, um, pre-internet, you know, became this bestseller passed from woman to woman and hand to hand and survivor to survivor. And, you know, suddenly I was getting invited to speak all over the country and basically to be a role model for healing. And I found when I would give these talks, sometimes to like huge audiences, auditoriums full of women who had traveled across state lines to hear me speak, when I would get up on the stage, I would feel like some other, I don't know how to put this, but some other kind of energy, some kind of clarity would just come through me. And I would really be able to speak with that healing voice. Um, And then after that, and I would feel this kind of energy filling me and I would greet these hundreds and hundreds of women who would stand in line to hug me or shake my hand or have me sign their book. Um, And I would feel this amazing connection with each one of them. And then at the end of the night, I would go back to my hotel room in whatever city I was in. And it was like that energy would just deflate. And I would feel this loneliness and this isolation and this sense of being like a lonely speck of dust floating around in the universe, which is, you know, how I had felt as a child being sexually abused. And so there was a split between the public me and what I was manifesting or bringing to the world and how I was feeling on the inside. And that gap, it took me years to close that gap um, and to feel like I was really congruent with who I was on the inside and what I was saying on the outside. Um, And I, you know, I went through years of people coming up to me no matter where I was. I mean, I could be in the movies um, and going into the bathroom and someone would be waiting outside the stall to tell me about how they'd been sexually abused as a child. And so I I could not get away from it. And um, on one hand, I felt like this incredible um, gratitude at being in this position of being able to help people heal and you know, it was an amazing gift on one hand, but it also was, um, it, it made it so that it's all I could focus on. You know, it was my work life. It was my personal life. It was influencing my relationships. Um, and I ultimately, after a number of years, I got to the point where I didn't want my whole life to be focused on this terrible trauma that had happened to me. And I wanted to, you know, move on and establish a life based on who I was today, not what had happened to me in the past. So I actually walked away from that fame, so-called fame, really when I was at the peak of my success, uh, because I I really wanted to establish myself as a writer writing about other things. I wanted to move on with my life and find out who I could be after all this healing I had done. That's an an amazing way of putting it, Laura. Thanks for um, sharing it. And I guess fast forward, right? Because here's here's this memoir (laughs) that I wanted to speak to a little bit today. Uh, I truly adore how you did the structure of your book. Um, I'm a bit structure obsessed. So I like thinking about it. I like teaching it. I like analyzing it. 
And you did something that in all of the many, many hundreds of memoirs I've read, I've never seen before. And that's basically that you have this braided element of the book because you reach back into scenes from your upbringing and from your adult life. Um, and you intersperse those into the narratives, but your primary narrative is actually a countdown to your mother's death. And so it has this kind of death march quality to it, you know, to the very end. And it's effective and it's also arresting. Uh, what made you decide to handle the telling of the story this way? I struggled with the structure for years. It took 10 years for me to write this book. And I, at the first iteration of it, um, I was going to write it as a play because my mother was an actor. And I thought writing a play would be a great tribute to her, you know, and, and I wanted to do something theatrical. So I, I wrote it as a play and I um, had a friend of mine who was a director read it. And she just looked at me and she said, there is nothing like a play in this. In this. She said, you don't know, <laughs> you have no sense of dramatic uh, intensity. You know, this is, this is not a play. You should go back and write it as a memoir. And then I then I wrote it as a epistolary book, as a series of letters, because, you know, as you know from reading it, there's this thread of this kind of amazing correspondence I had with my mother, even during the years we were estranged. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it all as letters, either actual original letters um, or letters I composed to her after her death. And I had, you know, another set of um, beta readers read that. And the feedback I got was, we feel like we're on the outside of a private conversation. So I scrapped that, you know, um, and then the third iteration is what you read, um, which is, you know, turned into the final book. And I, I struggled so much with the structure. Um, the countdown actually was um, an idea from the writing coach I worked with. Um, and I thought it was a brilliant idea. And I went with it um, because it creates this propulsive tension, you know, of and at first you don't know what the countdown is for. Right. You know, it takes a while before you discover, oh, this is counting down to her mother's death. Yeah. And I, I, I and the, you know, the, at one point, the book had 140,000 words. You know, I think in the end it had 90,000 or 88,000. So I, I cut 50,000 words. And that's not easy to do. <laughs> a, a lot of that was um, I had a lot more backstory and a lot more stories from my early life. And I just I had to decide what was in the foreground and what was in the background. And, you know, the main story I decided was from the moment I get a phone call from my mother announcing that she's, you know, 80 years old, she's moving across the country to live in my town for the rest of her life until her death. Mm -hmm. And that that was the main story, because, you know, what I wanted to address is what is it like to take care of someone who's betrayed you in the past? And, and you know, really that question of could I become the daughter she needed me to be? with this whole challenging history we had in the past. But I, then I had to just include enough of what had happened in the past for it all to make sense. Like, why were we so estranged? Why was our relationship so fraught? And I just tried to include kind of the minimum of that. And so that's that's where most of the cuts took place. Um, I, I also ended up in the first third just shortening the chapters dramatically and interspersing them, you know, to create momentum. And that was a lot of trial and error to do that. Well, Laura, on that topic of estrangement, you have resources in your book for people who are grappling with estrangement. And I've noticed this trend with memoir where there's an element of self-help involved. And this, of course, makes sense because some of your readers will gravitate toward your book because they've experienced estrangement and want some support in that. So I was wondering if you could talk about the theme of estrangement more and how you sought to organize your story around that experience. 
Well, you know, I had already written a, a nonfiction book about estrangement almost 20 years ago called I Thought We'd Never Speak Again, which was kind of a how-to guide of, you know, the different, the four, I called, I identified four different types of reconciliation from kind of um, the, the one we all dream about, you know, the hospital reconciliation scene at the end of someone's life where there's this huge emotional coming together, um, you know, all the way to something where an, a direct relationship with the other person is impossible and you have to find that reconciliation inside yourself. So I I knew that I wanted this book to be educational without being educational. You know, I wanted people to read it and through osmosis because it's a good story. I wanted them to learn some things about reconciliation. And, you know, I think my mother and I, in the course of the story, demonstrate a lot of the principles of reconciliation. Like we we agreed to disagree. You know, uh, she said my grandfather had not sexually abused me. It could never have happened. And I said it did. You know, and for years we were at war because I wanted her to finally admit it had happened. And she wanted me to recant and, you know, that was never going to happen. And yet there were aspects of my mother that I loved and missed and aspects of me that she loved and missed. And also there was a grandchild, a first grandchild in the mix that she really wanted to have her relationship with. And I think that that motivated us to try to find other threads of connection besides this huge elephant in the room. And so we did. You know, at one point we just agreed to disagree that this topic was basically off the table and we stopped trying to convince each other. And, you know, then started, she, one of the things she did, I think that was, you know, I think this, this took both of us coming towards each other. And one of the things she did that I think was really remarkable is she really stressed that as long as we were living 3,000 miles apart from each other, we would never reconcile because all we had was a really shitty past. And so she started coming out to California for a couple of months in the winter uh, she was a snowbird, you know, after she retired, she would she would flee the New Jersey winters and come out to California for a couple months. And she would rent a place nearby. You know, she never stayed with us. And I, at first, I was not really excited about this idea. I was very, um, you know, I didn't help her. I didn't help her find a place. I didn't help her move. I was incredibly ambivalent. And she just kept persisting. And over a period of doing this for like eight or nine years, we gradually started to rebuild threads of connection around things we could connect with. But it was often very, very volatile, you know, like one wrong word, one misspoken thing, you know, and we would be back in our corners at war. Um, and I remember there's there's one point I, I write about in the book where I said we had a fight and I realized at the end of the fight that it didn't mean the relationship would end and that that reconciliation didn't mean we wouldn't fight. It meant that we could fight. And I, I remember that as a very significant moment of of realizing that we finally had enough latitude and flexibility between us that our relationship was no longer completely brittle. Yeah, I mean, that's an important awareness. And it's also making me think, you know, the, the theme is estrangement, but the theme is reconciliation, right? I mean, it's a, they're, they're just two parts of a whole. Uh, and, you know, the mother-daughter narrative, Laura, is one of the most enduring kinds of memoirs. I was thinking maybe second only to coming of age or possibly uh, survivor narratives. And then, of course, sometimes mother-daughter books are also coming of age and survivor narratives as well. But obviously, there's something so profound and 
primal about this relationship, how our mothers shape us and drive us crazy and how we turn into our mothers and how we love and hate our mothers. So I wanted to ask you about the push-pull and I'm imagining this exists. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm, if I don't hit this quite right, you can answer this however you want. But I was thinking about, you know, there's this notion that I imagine you, you had to write this memoir in the sense that like you couldn't not do it, which is the case for so many memoirists that I know, but also that there must've been some resistance, you know, whether that was resistance to what you were going to share or maybe resistance to the notion that, um, you know, this kind of book has quote unquote been done, right. The mother daughter narrative. So I was just thinking it might be helpful to listeners who are writing about the mother daughter relationship uh, to know, you know, how your critic might have popped up around this and how you overcame it to write this beautiful story? That's a great question. Um, I, you know, I never felt like it's been done before. I mean, obviously it has, but I, that never was an impediment to me. I, I felt like I had a unique story, really unusual hmm. and, and also universal. And mm-hmm. um, I, so, so that was not an issue for me. I, but I had some really big impediments. One was I have a terrible memory. You know, I think because of the trauma in my childhood, I learned to dissociate. So I dissociated through a lot of my life, which means there's a lot of things I don't remember. Um, I, I'm a cancer survivor and I had chemotherapy and that, that chemotherapy kind of wiped out another big chunk of my memory. Um, you know, and my mother had dementia. My grandmother was, they called it senile in those days. And, you know, I'm getting older and my memory is just not as good as it used to be. So I think my first thing was I just don't remember enough to write a memoir. That was a huge obstacle. And I really had to learn how to write about what I couldn't remember and how to shape the book around what I did remember and steer away from the things that I really couldn't remember. And and also how to write scenes where there's only a little bit of what I remembered and still write an effective scene. So that was one obstacle. And I think, um, so, and I didn't think I had the skill. You know, I just, I had to, the books I've published before were all informational nonfiction. And I really understood that genre, but this was a story. And I really didn't know how to sustain a story over the course of a whole manuscript. And I had to learn about, you know, how do you build momentum? How do you create a book where people want to keep turning the pages? Um, how do you develop your characters? How do you create a story arc and all the ups and downs? How do you turn your scenes so that there's an emotional peak in one and a valley in the next one? And so I had to learn so many things. And, you know, I've been teaching writing for 25 years, and it was super exciting to have to learn so many new skills to pull this book off. So that was the second obstacle. And the third one was my relatives. You know. Um, My immediate family is in this book, my my wife, my three children, my brother, um, and my mother, and she had died. So I didn't feel like I needed her permission, but I had to get the permission. I wanted to get the permission of the people, my my family members who were in the book. So I worked with them the whole time. But I, I also, and they all, you know, were very supportive. But then I had like a little pod of relatives who had been very, very angry when I published The Courage to Heal because they we shared the same grandfather. And I had lost a lot of those relationships for many years. And it had taken like more than two decades to start to rebuild the relationships with those people. And they're not, they're not, I'm talking about maybe like a dozen people, cousins mostly on, on my mother's side of the family. And it's not like I'm particularly intimate with them, but I had, I was so proud of having repaired the relationship so at least it's cordial Mm. and we could maybe have some holidays together. 
Um, and I really worried about how they were going to respond because I, I just didn't want to go through that again. I didn't want to lose them all over again because I'm too old to have another 20 years to repair relationships. So that was really a big impediment. And I had to struggle with the balance between or weighing the the many readers who might really benefit from this story with this little pod of people who could be really upset by it. And to me, it doesn't matter anymore that I'm right. In other words, that I'm telling a story that's true and they're in denial about what happened. To me, that's irrelevant now. I'm, I'm at the point where I, I care about them as people and I'm a public person and doing something public that's going to hurt them for whatever reason is not something, it's something that's distressing to me. And um, ultimately, I had to decide that I was going to do it. And I, I didn't, I, I kept feeling like I had to confess what I was doing the whole time I was writing the book. And I remember walking with um, Ellen Bass, my co-author from Courage to Heal, and she just kept saying, don't say anything, you know, <laughs> wait till you have a book contract signed and you know, this is actually going to be a book. Right. And then tell them. So that's what I did. I, you know, the, I think the day I signed my book contract, I wrote a letter to these relatives. And I, I didn't ask permission. I basically informed them and I apologized. You know, I said, I'm really sorry that these choices I'm making may have a really challenging impact on your life. I know it's really tough to have a writer in the family. Um, and it's really interesting because I didn't get that much response. One cousin wrote me a very angry letter. Um, another one said, I had her, her, her mother and father were characters in the book, and I wanted her to know that. She said, that's okay with me. She said, but I don't want you to ever bring this up to me again. Huh. A third person said, you know, God, Laura, are you ever going to be done writing about this topic? <laughs> right. That's a common one. Right. And then just last week, I got a letter from a cousin of mine who had been one of the harshest critics around The Courage to Heal, and he, he wrote supporting me my right to tell this story. He said, I'm 78 years old and I've come to the point in life where I realize people aren't all one thing or another. I want to support you in doing this. And I just pre-ordered your book. And it was like, I cried. It was so <laughs> touching to me because he was, he was like an ogre in my mind of this person I was going to lose. Um, and, you know, when he reads the book, he may be actually really appalled. I don't know. But I, the fact that that happened made me see that you just don't really know how people are going to respond. But that was probably one of the hugest impediments for me. Hmm. It's interesting to me that you had to learn new narrative tools to to write a memoir, even after you were, you know, obviously a very accomplished writer. But with uh, the, all the challenges you mentioned, I, I, well, I was curious, like when you said that about your, the narrative tools you'd learned, if you were, would think about writing another memoir, I don't know the answer to that right now. So I'm asking, but given all that you just told us, I imagine it might be very challenging to, to take another, write another memoir. Uh, you know, I mean, I don't know that I have, I would, I would love to write another story for sure. Um, and I don't know that I don't have anything in mind. You know, I feel like I mined so much of my life for this book. Um, I don't know what else I would write about. I, I know that um, my immediate family has made it really clear to me that they don't want me to write about them anymore. Or, you know, like if you read the book, you'll see that, you know, my my wife and my children are not really as fully drawn uh, as my mother, my brother and I who are the main characters. Um, and that's because I was honoring their relationships and their requests that they're private people. So, you know, there's th there's a lot of topics in my life that feel off limits in terms mm -hmm. of turning them into literature. Um, I don't know. You know, I would love to write more about my father, who was just a really fascinating 
person who, you know, left our family and dropped out and became a hippie and took me to Woodstock when I was 13 years old. And But, you know, I don't know. I, I've thought about writing fiction, um, which I've never done, just because it seems like it would be so much fun not to be bound to what actually happened. I've heard uh, lots of memoirists say the next book is going to be <laughs> fiction. I think there's a reason for that. Oh, Laura, well, thank you. The book is beautiful. It was a real privilege to read it. So thank you. And uh, we wish you the best of luck and want to remind everybody that it's pre-orderable, available later this month. So uh, really best of luck. Let me just say one more thing, which is that I've posted um, the first five chapters on my website at uh, lauradavis.net forward slash chapters. So if you want to give a read to a, a pretty good sized sample, um, you can do it up there. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lauren. I, I, given what, how you finished the interview here, I want to I want to tell you that National Novel Writing Month is happening this November, so you can sign up for that novel. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. Thanks, Grant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we will be right back with today's book trend. I chose supply chain disruption as today's book trend grant because this is going to be something that's affecting most of our listeners this fall and leading up to the holidays in some capacity. You know, when I hear the word supply chain disruption, I think fun, Brooke. Lots of fun. <laughs> um, what, what is supply chain disruption? Yeah, the supply chain has to do with availability of products. And the products that we're interested in, of course, are books. And so in my role as publisher of She Writes and Spark Press, I received a notice from my distributor uh, that there was, quote, a perfect storm brewing and that this storm was likely going to cause significant supply chain issues this holiday season. Uh, the issues that are causing this disruption are things like labor shortages, which everybody has been hearing about if you've been paying attention to the news, and where this affects books is in warehouses and also drivers. So we have transportation problems, we have rising costs of goods, uh, especially paper, but also gas and shipping costs. And then there's also shortages. That's why this is so fun, right? Shortages in manufacturing, supplies and other materials. Again, paper is definitely a problem. You know, everybody has heard of the lumber shortage and that does extend to paper as well. Uh, and the reason I actually brought this up today is because everybody can read uh, Laura Davis's blog post that she put up on her site at lauradavis.net. And the post is called Crazy Risky Lottery. You might have to scroll down a week to find it. But she writes about the fact that her own book publication date got pushed because, well, the paper wasn't there on time. Yeah, I was just reading about this, Brooke, and um, it obviously impacts customers and authors too. And I'm wondering if it's in it's affected my book because uh, I've had several friends uh, who've ordered it in various places. They've emailed me to say, what's up? I'm not getting your book. You know, what's happening? And it's been very frustrating for me. And I, I, I just read the other day that books that used to take like two minutes from, from publisher to printing is they're now taking like eight weeks. And so, you know, that also, Hey, you know, what's around the corner happens to be Christmas, um, <laughs> <laughs> kind of around the corner or not, but depending on how you view it, but, but, you know, I guess we shouldn't wait. Uh, those of us who like to buy books for our friends and family, maybe we shouldn't wait. Maybe we should uh, order them now. Yeah, shop early. Uh, and for those of you who feel safe enough, shop in person. But of course, we are still dealing with this stupid pandemic. And so people are going to feel safer shopping online. 
Yeah, well, since I, I talked a little bit about um, how it's affecting customers and writers, how is it affecting you as a publisher, Brooke? Yeah, I mean, we're looking closely at inventory and reordering early, getting ahead of reprints. We've been doing that ever since August. Uh, but the irony is that all publishers are doing this. And so, of course, it's bottlenecking our printers. So I think we're going to be in for a rough fall. And uh, probably some books are just going to be out of stock for the holidays, no matter how good a job we do. Yeah. Well, good luck. And, and thank you for this, Brooke. Um, I'm going to head out as soon as we wrap up here to get some holiday shopping done. At least that's what I'm thinking. But in the meantime, these words, supply chain disruption, or especially supply chain, is reminding me that maybe instead of, you know, we often sign off by, by asking our listeners to, to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever they download our, our podcast. But, but I'd like them this time to invite their friends to listen because I don't think listening to a podcast should be an isolated or solitary experience. You know, maybe it would be good for book clubs to, to share these topics and, and, and talk about them with others. So this is all to say, thanks for listening. Help us keep this show going and we will see you next week. Thank you.